Let us pray. God, please open our hearts and our minds and our heads and our beings to hear your word, to understand your love, and to send forth compassion and loving kindness. In his name we pray, amen. Today's first scripture reading is Psalm 145, verses 10 through 18, and can be found on page 581 in your pew Bible. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your faithful shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to all people your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his deeds. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, satisfying the desire of every living thing. The Lord is just in all his ways and kind in all his doings. The Lord is near to all who call on him and to all who call on him in truth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, so last week, Seth mentioned that here at St. James, we're making a concentrated effort to reduce paper by printing less bulletins. I mean, he gave the encouragement that you could do one of two things. You could share with the people sitting next to you, and he also gave you the encouragement to actually get out your phone during church and visit stjamespress.org where there's the bulletin, and you could follow along on your phone during the, during the service. Well, I'm here today, I'm going to mention actually another way that you can follow along online. And this one's near and dear to me because it involves an app uh, made by my company, Faithlife. Um, if you're so interested, you can visit your app store of choice, whether it be the iTunes store, um, let's see all of them, the Google store, the Android store, and you can download the Faithlife app. Once you download the Faithlife app, you'll be asked to create an account um, with an email address and a pay, uh, password, and then you can actually join um, a Faithlife group for St. James Presbyterian Church. Um, and on that page, there's the weekly bulletin that you can find there, as well as announcements from the church, newsletters. And one of my favorite things about following the bulletin online on the Faithlife app is that the Bible readings are actually hyperlinked, so you can click on them and they will open them up in a Bible. So that's just my plug for a really great app and not just because the company that I work for makes it. It's a really good app. So you can share a bulletin, go online, um, stjamespres.org, or you can download the Faithlife app and join the St. James group. I um, mean, with that, our scripture reading today comes from... Um, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Um, if you're following along in the Pew Bible in front of you, that's on page 193 in the New Testament. Uh, this is Paul writing. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit 
and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than we can ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Um, so last week um, was a really fun week for me um, because as a pop music nerd, I got to watch not one, but two great music documentaries um, back to back. Um, and both of them actually served as kind of counterexamples to Woodstock 1969 in the Summer of Love. The first documentary that I watched was called Summer of Soul. Uh, its subtitle was called The Revolution Would Not Be Televised. And it's a documentary of a series of concerts that took place in, I think it was August of 1969 in Harlem, New York. And these concerts took place over five weekends and over 300,000 people attended these concerts. The concerts were filmed but had never aired until this documentary. Now, the 1960s were a turbulent time for the black community. While making some progress in the civil rights, they were met with huge opposition at every turn. And in the 60s, JFK was murdered. Then Malcolm X was murdered. Martin Luther King Jr. was murdered. Robert Kennedy was murdered. And yet these concerts were a joyous celebration. They just popped with life. That you, the screen was filled with black men and women of all ages coming together. There was dancing. There was smiling. There was celebration. There were shots of six-year-olds standing and dancing next to 70-year-olds. People surrounded the park with food from their homes to feed one another. People brought umbrellas to shade each other from the heat. There was all sorts of different music. There was soul, there was gospel, there was R&B, there were young bands, young artists, there were older established artists. And it was just filled with joy. I think one of my favorite moments of the documentary was watching the group Fifth Element perform their number one single. Um, this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius and let the sunshine in. And if you watch it, they also have two of the five members of the Fifth Element watching themselves perform. And this is the first time that they've ever seen this performance. And here they were. Years later, almost 50 years later, their faces just lighting up. Their smiles couldn't be any bigger, and their eyes were huge. And just the feeling that they got to be able to see what a powerful moment this was in their lives. And then the next day, I watched a documentary about Woodstock 1999. In 1994, um, promoters celebrated the 25th anniversary of the original Woodstock. And it went really well, well enough that they decided that they wanted to make it an every five-year sort of thing. 
And so they had another one in 1999. And it went poorly. Really, really poorly. So poorly, I don't know if it could possibly go worse. That by the end of the third night, the last night of the event, it descended into scenes from Lord of the Flies. That there was chaos and anarchy. There was sexual violence. There was massive amounts of arson and destroying of property. People were literally knocking over ATMs and tearing them apart with their bare hands. They had to call in National Guard in order to clear out the place. And this documentary was asking the question, what went wrong? And there are some easy things to point out. I mean, it was insanely hot. And having it at an old Air Force base where everything was blacktop, which increased the heat, didn't help. There wasn't enough water. The infrastructure to support hundreds of thousands of people wasn't there. There wasn't enough security. They didn't help themselves by only booking three female artists, and then they filled out the rest of the headlining lineup with hyper-aggressive young men. They set themselves up to fail. But the part of the film that was, to me, the most fascinating was the noticing that the crowd was largely white, college-age males. And this documentary wrestled with the question, why were they so angry? What could have possibly driven them to such rage that they devolved in what could only be described as evil? That the 90s were a time of relative prosperity and economic growth. And these were the privileged. These were people that were on the top of the power structure. Why were they so angry? That if you were to watch these two documentaries back to back, the one that you would guess would be angry, that had a right to be angry, wasn't. They were the ones filled with joy and celebration. This is a question that haunts us. What drives us? What motivates us? What powers us to do the things that we do? What leads us to live a life of joy, service, celebration? Or what leads us into a life of anger and rage? And it's for this reason that Paul prays that we might be filled and strengthened in our hearts by the love of Christ, that we might turn our rage and our anger into something good, beautiful, and true. Will you pray with me? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. Amen. So our text today comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And if you're to open your Bible and look at the book of Ephesians, you discover that the book of Ephesians is divided into six chapters. And this book is actually a letter. And traditionally, people think of the letter as having two halves. The first half is the first three chapters, chapters one through three, and it's an extended bit of theology in the language of prayer and praise. It's a meditation of thankfulness on what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. That God has brought together both Jews and non-Jews, that is the Gentiles, into the church and formed a new humanity. Now this week the Olympics started. In sports terms, this would be like two countries merging and forming some sort of Olympic super team. 
Now, in the second half of the letter, chapters 4 through 6, it's traditionally thought of as the ethical half of the book. It follows this pattern of because of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus, because God has formed this new humanity, this is how you should live your life. But before this ethical half of the letter begins, Paul ends with a final prayer. It's a prayer for the church. It's a prayer for those who have received the message that Christ Jesus has brought us near to God and unified us in Jesus Christ. Superficially, this unity and peace sounds pretty wonderful, doesn't it? I mean, here's what it says in Ephesians 2, 13 through 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He is our peace. In his flesh, he has made us both groups into one and broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the Christ, thus putting to death the hostility through it. Now that sounds pretty great. People were scattered, divided, at odds with one another, but God is breaking down that hostility and bringing together all different strands of people into one new humanity. Going back to Woodstock 1969, isn't that the traditional story? Bringing together people for a little peace, love, and harmony. But as I sit with the idea a little bit longer, it gets harder for me to understand. It might even feel less like good news for some people. Because what does it mean to be one people, a new humanity? In my hypothetical Olympics example, what would it mean for two countries to merge? What would their colors be? What would be their national anthem? You go all new? Does one country win and one country lose? And back in the real world, what does this new humanity mean? What does this mean for racial minorities? Does it mean abandoning cultures and traditions and being absorbed into the majority culture? What does it mean for women? In many faith traditions, there's a hierarchy of the sexes. Men are the leaders and teachers. Women are not. What do you do if you reject that division? Are you being forced in some lesser status? Yesterday, I, I saw somebody share a they were not happy about this podcast, but it was a podcast where a bunch of men talked about whether it was a mistake to educate women. What does that mean in a new humanity? What about the LGBTQ community that is harmed and is still harmed? What about those who have experienced abuse? What about those who have spoken out against abuses of power but were only silenced? The more that I think about it, the more it's harder for me to understand. And if I'm really honest with myself, there are people that I just don't want to be in fellowship with. There are people that I find whose views on the Christian faith are unloving and dangerous. On the same token, they probably think I'm a heretic. So what gives? Truthfully, I don't have the answer. But there are some things that I can fall back on. That throughout Scripture, there's this tension between the one and the many. Yeah, there's a unity and oneness found in Jesus Christ, but it's not a oneness that destroys all differences. 
It's not a matter of taking sugar and water and mixing it until it's just sugar water. That that which makes you, you, and that's what makes us, us, remains. In the book of Revelation, there's this wonderful vision of the nations bringing the glory of the nations into the heavenly Jerusalem. It's an idea that that which makes every people group unique and good has a place in God's kingdom. And throughout his letters, Paul walks this line where Jews are encouraged to approach their faith in a uniquely Jewish fashion. And Gentiles are do, do the same. That Jews aren't asked to become Gentiles and Gentiles aren't to become Jewish. And we get a hint of this in our passage today. Paul prays, For this reason I bow my knees before my Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth takes its name. When Paul is making this prayer, he's making a prayer for every family. That there's a uniqueness to this. He's not praying for us to become sugar water where all differences are dissolved. He's praying for you and your family. This may be your biological family, maybe your church family. Or as I like to think of it, he's praying for your people. I love this idea of us having our people. It could be our biological family, or it could be the family you've chosen, that this is your tribe. It's the people that love you and accept you for who you are and challenge you to become the best version of yourself that says, whatever you are, be a good one. And from there, Paul prays for three specific but interlocking things. First, he prays that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through the Spirit, that Christ may dwell in your hearts as you are rooted and grounded in love. And when we think of things that matter most to us, we use terms of inner feelings. That touched my soul. I'll always treasure you in my heart. That touched me to the core. They're all ways of saying that something matters to us internally. These are the things that are exclusive to you. They're hidden from everyone else. They're your deep feelings and belong only to you. And Paul is praying that that part of you is strengthened and Christ may dwell in that secret place in your soul. Paul's praying that Christ may live in that place that is most important to you. And then his second prayer is that we might have the power to comprehend what is the breadth, length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The first part is a bit curious, that we might comprehend what is the breadth, length, height, and depth. We kind of keep waiting for that object to come. The breadth, length, height, and depth of what exactly, Paul? He never comes out and says it, but we might infer that the next part is what he meant. He prays that we know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. That not only does Christ dwell in our innermost being, this is a love that is all-consuming. It fills the universe. It fills the cosmos. It is so extravagant and large that it surpasses knowledge. That we can never fully know the great, great love of Christ. And this brings us to Paul's final prayer and the reason for his prayers. That you may be filled with the fullness of God. 
And this ties it all together, and it comes back to his first prayer, that not only will Christ strengthen you and dwell in your inner being, that you will be filled with the fullness of God. And what is this fullness of God? It is nothing more and nothing less than the love of God that surpasses all knowledge and roots you and grounds you in love. Um, when I was in college, I was fortunate enough to be introduced to a book by C.S. Lewis called The Four Loves. And although C.S. Lewis wasn't the first one to notice that there are four different Greek words that get translated into English as love, these four words all have different nuance. I'm really thankful for this book because it helped me understand some of the nuances that we have when we use the word love. I mean, for example, I can say, I love bacon. And I do. I, I really love bacon. But it has a different meaning and significance than when I say, I love my wife. I could say, I love bacon and I love my wife, and most people would probably know I don't mean the same thing. Now, in Greek, there are four different terms for love. The first one is storge, and it's a, it's a friendly love. It's the love that's shared between two friends or a group of friends. It's this chosen bond to be there for one another. When push comes to shove, my favorite television shows to watch, the ones that I go back to over and over and over again, are all shows that are rooted in this storge love. It's these shows of chosen family. The first one that I remember was the television show Friends in the 90s and extended into shows like How We Met Your Mother and New Girl or workplace comedies like Parks and Rec and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. What I like about these shows is they're stories of chosen families, of people that continue to choose one another and to be there for each other when there's no obligation to do so. The next type of love is phileo love. This is the love of family. It's the love between family members. I could never not love my children. Even though I'm not particularly close with my sisters, it's a bond that can never be broken. That they are my sisters, and I am their brother, and I will always love them because we are family. And it's this love that makes family dysfunction so hard to navigate and work through. That no matter how toxic, difficult, or dangerous your family might be, they're still your family. It's a bond that is difficult and almost impossible to shake. The third type of love is eros, or erotic love. It's the love that's found in pop songs. It's the one of big feelings and romance and sexual attraction. It's wrapped up in big feelings and giving and receiving these big feelings with one another. And the last one is agape. This is what C.S. Lewis would call God love. It's the type of love that God has given and shown to us. And it's this agape love that Paul prays might fill us and consume us and propel us forward. And the Bible is one big book about God's agape love. It wrestles with this question and answers, what is God like? What I like about the story of God that's found in the Bible is that agape love is other-centric. It's a love that's full of action. It's a full of love that does things for one another. Or in the compassion camp, it sees, it feels, it helps. 
When we think of this agape love of Christ that feeds us, we'll recall the Jesus who's described in the kingdom, who described the kingdom of God in terms of action. He says the kingdom of God is like an enemy of the Jews who sees a fellow person hurt and nearly dead on the side of the road, but feeds them and lodges them and cares for this person until they are well. We see Jesus feeding the hungry. We see Jesus healing the sick. We see Jesus noticing the powerless, the forgotten, those on the margins of society, and noticing them, welcoming them, inviting them in, and loving with them, saying that you matter, you belong, you are one of mine. And Paul is saying that this is the type of love that should fill us and compel us and move us forward. In all that we are and all that we do, this is what fills us, strengthens us, and lives in us. It propels us to a life that errs on the side of love. But this isn't something that we can do all on our own. In the end, we fall back on the work of God in us, where Paul says, now to him, by the who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can do, ask, or imagine. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for this message. Thank you for filling us with your love. May we be rooted and grounded in it and growing in our own extravagant love to one another. Amen.